everyone, Jeff here from besttechie.com, and this is Techie Bytes episode 58. Today I'm speaking with Peter Pizaris, co-founder and CEO of CodeStream. We discuss the process behind selling a company, including how to know when it's time to sell, as well as when it's time to leave. The time he and his team spent as part of Y Combinator's winter 2018 class, and how Peter has kept his founding team intact through four startups. Enjoy. I'm here with Peter Pizaris, the co-founder and CEO of a company called CodeStream. Uh, CodeStream helps development teams communicate more efficiently. I'm sure Peter can talk a lot more about this. He's also a serial entrepreneur, and he's built three companies with three successful exits under his belt. We'll talk more about that. Um, but first, Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you on. You are a, uh, you know, as I mentioned, a serial entrepreneur with a really interesting background, um, one that you know spans decades at this point. And, right. And and really, I think that I think that's really cool. Um, <laughs> Thanks. So, so let's get started. So the first thing I always ask people. Uh, you know, the very first question out of the gate. It's the hardest one, so we get that one out of the way early. Who are you, and what do you do on a day-to-day basis? Who are who am I? Um, well, I guess I, I identify most closely as an entrepreneur, at least in this context. Uh, I've been an entrepreneur for 24 years now. I've had the exceptional fortune of being able to work with the same bunch of knuckleheads for all 24 of those years. We met in college at Carnegie Mellon University in the computer science program. So we're a bunch of dorks like to write code. And as it turns out, that's a it was a pretty good business to get into in the mid nineties. And we've been having fun ever since. So that's who I am. And I'm an entrepreneur. I'm also a dad uh, and a husband. And uh, those things are also important to me. Um, in terms of what I do, uh, I am the CEO, but really any one of us could be CEO. It's just sort of like I chose the small straw, the short straw, I guess. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I, I try actually I've got a really good partner named Claudio who handles a lot of the responsibilities that most CEOs tackle. Um, and that frees up some of my time. Uh, I like to sometimes describe my job as being two full time jobs. Uh, during the day, I'm CEO. And at night, I still write code every day. That's really awesome. So you're still you're still uh, committing code to the code base at CodeStream. Then. That's right. That's right. And I, I think that's important for us since we're a developer tool that we build tools that we want to use ourselves. Um, I've always had uh, this idea that if you build something that scratches your own itch, you'll end up doing it better. I could never build uh, a device for um, you know, somebody who's disabled unless I was disabled, not that I couldn't do it, but I, I feel that that would be uh, a bigger challenge than trying to solve a problem that you have yourself. Yeah. I, I as someone who's, who's, uh, built a company to solve a problem that I was facing as well with Kaya, my analytics product that I, that I, that I, a company that I started mm-hmm. literally, I, 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 I have, I have to say, I agree with you. It's very, I feel like when if from from a technical not maybe maybe not so much a technical but from a truly understanding it perspective and also from a passion perspective right you have to as a founder of a company an entrepreneur you have to be into 
super passionate about what you're building yeah. in the first place. And and if you're if you're not, it's not a problem that you're that you've dealt with firsthand. It's hard. I feel like it's a little harder to kind of wrap your head around what it is that encompasses that actual problem and how and the best ways to solve it. So I, I'd agree with that analysis. Yeah, and I think there's another aspect, at least for me anyway, which is that there there are these really happy moments as you're developing the product if you're going to be using it yourself because you find yourself using it and you realize, well, I'm glad we built this feature because this helps me. Um, and conversely, if you end up building something, you know, it's one thing to look at your analytics and say, oh, not a lot of users are using this this new thing that we built. But if you yourself find yourself not using it, you can get deeper insight perhaps into why. Uh, so I think it's always important to look at what your customers are doing, but it's also important that you have your own insight into what problems your product is trying to solve. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to, for us to segue a little bit. Let's talk a little bit a little bit more about CodeStream. Mm -hmm. Tell us what it is and... Uh, I, you obviously had a pain point here, so and why you decided to start this particular this particular business. Well, as I mentioned, uh, I'm I'm a developer myself, and as you know, the the founding team came out of uh, the computer science program, so we have deep technical roots, and this is the first developer tool that we've built uh, as a business. And the prior businesses, all in one way or another, had to do with communication. So we've got a lot of years of experience building communication tools for various purposes. And as we've gone through that and as I've managed development teams over those years, the one thing that I've always wished is I wish that the developers on my team would talk to each other more about the source code. Um, and although there are some recent trends where that's happening more, for example, at code review time now, a lot of developers, uh, development teams are using pull requests as a way to organize changes and review code, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. We love that. It's been my observation that there's too much guesswork when it comes to development. And I'm sure everybody has their own favorite examples. Uh, but one of mine is that uh, we assigned a new developer, as, as many teams do, when you when hire a new engineer, you get them up to speed by having them fix bugs for a little while. And so this engineer got assigned to fix a bug, and uh, and he realized that if he takes a line of code that had been commented out, that if he uncommented that code, that it would fix the bug. So he does that. He uncomments the code. He commits it. He pushes it. And that change ended up in production. Now, you and I both know, and I'm sure all the listeners to this podcast will know, that that just introduced some sort of a regression because there was a reason that that code got commented out in the first place. Right. And to me, that's just one of example of many where if only we could ask each other questions about code more easily, and if only we could encourage developers to discuss code, then that would, that would benefit the whole team. And then when we thought about that more deeply, you know, what are the reasons that developers don't talk about code? And what we realized is that it's kind of hard uh, because somewhat uh, surprisingly, today's editors, the, the tool that we use to write code, don't have any form of communication built in. 
And as we've all been exposed now to modern messaging systems from things like iMessage to Facebook Messenger to Slack to there are all these different communication tools for all these different purposes, as crazy as this sounds, nobody has built a tool specifically for software engineers to talk about code. And so that's what we built with CodeStream. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna jump out on a, on a little bit of a limb here. Um, I love the idea, but as a developer yourself, and I, I, obviously you know a ton of developers also, many of them have their own favorite particular editor, IDE, yeah. what have you, when they're writing code. How how do, how does CodeStream either integrate with those, or or is it kind of its own standalone thing uh, that you're working within? And how do yeah, you get people that's... into that? How do you get how do you convert them if that's the case? Yeah, yeah. So super important question, because one thing with, that we've learned uh, is that developers don't want to switch tools if they're happy with especially editor, like there have been religious wars rage, you know, this will date me a little <laughs> bit of Emacs versus VI, you know, uh -huh. back in the day. Thankfully, we've we've all most of us anyway, have moved on to more modern editors that are more capable. Um, but that's one thing that w was important to us is that don't make developers switch. And the good news is that modern editors, all the popular ones anyway, have extension languages. So you can enhance the editor. And that's what we did with CodeStream. So we built the front end of CodeStream as a plugin to your editor. So the functionality lives within your editor. So the simple user experience is as simple as Google Docs. If, if just like in Google Docs, where you, if you want to suggest a change or ask a question, you just select the text you want to comment it on and then type your comment. Well, CodeStream makes your editor work the same exact way. And then if you're using Slack or Microsoft Teams or email, um, we'll either send a Slack message on your behalf or a Microsoft Teams message or an email directly to the correct people, depending on whose code you're commenting on. So it's got the ease of use and simplicity of something like Google Doc comments, and yet all the functionality of your modern messaging systems. That's super smart. I I, I think that's a great idea. I'm as someone who you know I'm not a programmer myself per se, but obviously I've been involved in the development of different applications over the over the many years, and yeah. there's really like you said nothing like this. Uh, that's really been out. It's oh, you know, you always have your comments in the code themselves, as you as you mentioned. Right. Is that still is that still a method that with CodeStream you find people use, or is it now with CodeStream you don't really the comments in the code them in the code itself is kind of relegated to the CodeStream stream. Um, we find that people generally prefer to use CodeStream because it's interactive. And mm -hmm. one of the knocks against inline comments is that you can't have a conversation and you can't ask a question, which we think is an important part of learning about how a code base works is being able to ask questions. And But we do find that code comments still have some what of a purpose it, more in terms of documentation? Like if I want to let the world know that this function cannot be changed because of some, you know, security requirement or whatever it is, that's a good use for an inline code comment uh, because it's permanent. It's never going to change and it's always going to be there. CodeStream is more of a conversational tool where I can ask a question whether maybe I could ask a question whether that code comment still applies. 
and then I could get an answer from somebody else on the team. And that question, that answer will be still uh, associated with that code so that anybody on the team can view it. Gotcha. All right. Sounds good. I, I, th- I think it's a, I think it sounds like a really great product. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Especially, uh, I, I, I totally can see the use case for this. And uh, it seems like, uh, have you found your product market fit as they like to say? Um, yeah, we have. Um, one of the things that's remarkable about CodeStream is that when we demo it to, to customers, uh, the, the initial reaction is almost always like, wait a second, like, hasn't somebody already built this? Like, it's such a straightforward, simple that's idea. What, like, To be honest, that's exactly what I yeah. thought when I first went to the website to check it out. Yeah, you're like, yeah. somebody like, must have done this. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And... And when we first had the idea, we thought that too. You know, we were like, hey, so I mean, you know, this is a good idea, but I'm sure it's been tried before. And the truth is it really hasn't. There's like one weird reference way back when in like in the 70s, IBM had some sort of thing that kind of sort of did something similar, but not really. But other than that, you know, nobody's attempted it with a, a modern development solution. And then, you know, when we went about to build it, we kind of figured out why which is just really, really hard. Um, and there are two dimensions of complexity. Uh, the first is, you know, we, we currently support 14 different editors. And unlike the web, if you think back to the browser wars when we had Netscape versus IE versus Safari, mm-hmm. at least those different browsers were trying to implement the same standards. They were all trying to do HTML and JavaScript and CSS. Well, when it comes to editor extensions, there's no standard. Um, JetBrains are, use Kotlin as an extension language, and Visual Studio uses .NET, and Visual Studio Code uses TypeScript. So in order to support all these different editors, we have to build entirely new solutions for each one of them. And that's important because once your development team gets above a certain size, you're going to have different editors because everybody's got their, their preferred one. So we had to build all these different clients, and that's challenge number one. And the second dimension of complexity is that unlike a Google Doc, where if I'm commenting on a document and you see the comment, we're both looking at essentially the same document because there's only one document. Well, with software development, the way it works is that everybody gets their own copy of the source tree, and my version of the file might be different than your version of the file because we're on a different branch or you've made a change or I've made a change. And the complexity of dealing with that is non-trivial. So we spent a lot of time building out solutions to those two issues. And I'm happy to say that uh, we're available today in production and it works. Nice. So I want to I shift gears a tiny bit. I want to talk about uh, the fact that you've sold three companies, one of which is, uh, was Glyph, which you sold to RingCentral, the other of which uh, Commissioner.com, which you sold to CBS Sports. I want uh, instead of just talking about you know the the fact that you sold them. Let's I want to talk about the process. What yeah. was in, what's involved in an acquisition like that? And you know, so let, let's start with that. What's involved in an acquisition? Like what 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 should a founder be prepared for when uh, being a you know when when that's in the when something like that's potentially in the works? Ah, uh, well, that's a. That's a good question. And, and unfortunately, there's no simple answer because uh, I've had those three experiences. I've also, you know, through friendships, un- heard stories about other acquisitions as well. And, and having participated in Y Combinator, we get exposed to a number of those um, stories. 
And for me, my three circumstances were very different. Um, the first time we sold a company, uh, we, at the time, we had no idea whether we were going to be successful or not. We didn't know how to value our company. I was living, I was sleeping on the floor of the office because I couldn't afford an apartment and an office. So we chose having an office. So we slept on the floor and uh, we didn't know whether we were ever going to make money with it. And one day our partners took us out to lunch and they said, we'd like to buy your company. And it was a pretty big surprise because <laughs> we didn't know that uh, that our company was worth buying. And then they said, and we want to pay you $16 million. And I don't know how long it took for me to pick my job off the floor, uh, but it was a while because I had been eating like ramen noodles and like we used to splurge for the 99 cent Whopper, you know, when they had a special. And so to hear that somebody was willing to pay millions and millions of dollars uh, was just amazing. And we sold it to them about a month later, super fast process, and we sold it for 46. So that was that was an unbelievably awesome outcome. And, uh, and it really changed us as a team forever because we had worked so hard and we didn't know we were going to get out of it. And to be rewarded in a life-changing way um, kind of redoubled our commitment to each other and to being entrepreneurs because uh, it was a lot of fun, a lot of work, uh, but also it, it you know, improved not only our lives but the lives of a lot of our coworkers as well. So that that was the easy one, uh, and then the the tougher, much tougher one was the second company, and that process took over six months. Um, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, I I can say that, although I had other issues in my family life at the time, that going through that process uh, in many ways contributed to the end of my marriage. Um, and it was very, very difficult emotionally and personally. And it, one of the reasons that it was so challenging was that if uh, the buyer didn't know this at the time, but our business wasn't super healthy. I mean, we, we disclosed everything to them, but it was basically a, a binary outcome for us. Like it was either sell the company or shut it down. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so the difference in sort of what that would mean to all of us. And because we had been worked on this business for much longer, it was a, you know, about eight years worth of effort before we sold it. And that deal died nine times uh, uh, until it got done. And the, the sense of relief when we finally had the wire and the money in the bank and all the paperwork signed, I can't even describe the wave of euphoria that passed through my body it was like a physical sensation just to be okay, know that whirlwind. yeah it was crazy um but that was that was a, a long process and it was tough it was very tough um and then the third acquisition was kind of in between um you know we we learned a lot through that difficult one and so the third one we sold to ring central it was their first acquisition ever so i'm not sure that they uh understood the process super well and the challenge there was that the deal terms just kept changing. You know, it seemed like every time we got on the phone with them, there would be some new twist. And that, that made it hard to understand where we were going to end up at the end. Because if every time there's a new change, you're just sort of saying, okay, well, if we accept this, what else will we have to accept next week or, or tomorrow? 
And so we had to make a strategic decision at one point to just say no, you know, even though the term that they introduced wasn't necessarily uh, the end of the deal, we made it the end of the deal for us because we just feared backsliding into who knows what. Um, but thankfully, that that deal got done as well. And that was perhaps the best of the three acquisitions. Actually, the, the first and the third acquisition we, we did worked out really, really well uh, on both sides. And, you know, especially for Glip, when Ring Central bought it, if you look at their stock price, you know, it was it was doing OK, but not great for years and years and years. And then like the moment they bought Glip, uh, it's been like a 10x jump since then. So they've been doing really, really well. Glip's been doing well for them and I uh, couldn't be happier. So when so when you uh, when you sold any of these companies, did you end up working at the uh, acquiring company uh, at all, or did you leave um, after the acquisition? In all three cases, I st stayed for at least two years. Okay. And that, that part, and that was part of the deal terms. Uh, not depends on like the first acquisition. It wasn't. I guess we had to stay for a year. We didn't have to stay, but we had an an extra bonus payment a year later if we stayed. Mm -hmm. Um, so we did. I ended up staying three years after that first acquisition, happily, um, until the bubble burst. And then, like, you know, uh, these these broadcast companies weren't the big media companies weren't investing in the internet in like the 2001, 2002 timeframe. So my job became kind of boring. <laughs> you know, it's mm -hmm. sort of like, who are we going to lay off this quarter? That's not a lot of fun. Um, but then the second and third. You know, the second acquisition, I stayed on for two and a half years, and that was part of the deal. They wanted us to stay, um, and so they made it worthwhile for us to stick around. And then the third one, I stayed for a little over a year, almost two years. Um, and that one was a, a little different in that um, they had a very, uh, I'll say, strong and opinionated leadership team already in place. And uh, they, they didn't really – they wanted to fold – uh, the glip leadership into their existing structure. So, um, I, I found that there wasn't a lot for me to do and contribute. So after a little over a year, it was, it was, uh, it was time for me to move on. Gotcha. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, mistakes. We all have them. <laughs> um, yeah. Specifically with regard to running any of the companies that, uh, you, you've built, what, what are some of what are some of the biggest ones that you, you know you would highlight maybe top one or two and what would you and if you had that same problem now how would you handle it differently? Um, I have two big ones and both from the same company, which was that second company, Multiply. Uh, the first is that for uh, the first mistake was that after about ten years of building products based on gut uh, and just assuming that the next version of the product is going to be better than the last and you know, pushing it out to production and then seeing how it does. We had one major release with that product, uh, and it was multi the company's name was Multiply. And this one release, which we called 3.0, after we released it, we just saw the numbers crater. Kind of like uh, when Dig released, uh, what was it, version 4? Yeah. <laughs> very <laughs> similar, very similar. Yeah. And unfortunately, at the time, there was there wasn't, we hadn't implemented, you know, now the way you do it is you do these rolling releases where you release new features and functionality to a certain percentage of your audience and you see how it does before you roll it out more widely. But back then we didn't have that capability. And so it was like, you know, do it or don't do it. And we didn't roll back to the earlier version of the product and we never really recovered. Um, so the, the growth had been healthy up until that point. And at that point, the, the, 
we didn't have growth anymore. We, we were shrinking and, uh, and never really, and it took a long time for us to grow again, a uh, couple of years. So that, that was a big setback. The second thing that we did, the second big mistake, which is at the same company is, and this is crazy, uh, but true. Um, so we had, we built, uh, Multiply was a competitor to Facebook. It was essentially what Facebook is today, but we launched that product back in 2003. At the time, Facebook was not what it is today. Back in 2003, Facebook was just connected profiles. So you can jump from one page to another page to another page and you can click like and you can flirt with girls and that's essentially what it was for. But importantly, it didn't have a news feed. It didn't have one place where you see all the updates, all the photo albums, all the things that are being shared uh, as a consumable feed. And that's what Multiply was. And so we had a lot of success in, in building out what we thought was going to be the main big personal sharing network. And we, we um, instituted or, or developed a lot of firsts within that social media uh, industry. And we we're very proud of that. And we were, we had stuck to this idea that that's what multiply was, um, that, that we were for photo sharing. We were for, uh, blogging and, you know, sharing updates and, and nothing could <laughs> divert us from that path. Um, but then as Facebook was getting more and more popular, even in the areas of the world where we had been the number one network, um, we started to realize that, uh, that they were going to win. And at the time, this was in 2008 or so, when the financial markets had just collapsed. And Facebook was already had already raised a ton more money than we did. So we weren't able at the time to raise more money because you know, there just wasn't any money at that time. And so we were in a tough spot. Um, so our mistake was that we stuck to what we thought we were for too long without finding out from our customers what we really were. And so what I mean by that is that we were popular in different areas of the world and in different areas of the world, Multiply was used for different things. And one of the most popular places that we, where we were was in Southeast Asia. That wasn't by intention or design, it's just where we took off. And the people in Southeast Asia were using Multiply not so much as a personal sharing network, but as an e-commerce platform. So much like Craigslist or eBay, their posts were about something that they had for sale. Now, technically, that was against our terms of service because we said in our rules that like, you're not allowed to run a business on Multiply because we didn't want to have to deal with the hassle and whether we had to collect taxes or do anything like that. So we just said, you're not allowed to do that. And we sort of kept a blind eye to that particular usage. But when in 08, we realized we, we have to find some sort of path forward that doesn't involve competing with Facebook, um, we started looking into that buying and selling activity and we measured it. So the first thing we did was we asked our customers, you know, raise your hand if you're buying and selling on Multiply. And then the first week, something like 17,000 people raised their hand. After the first month, it was like 50,000 people. And, you know, as a media person, somebody who'd been building media sites for years and years and years, I was like, yeah, see, yeah you know, 50,000 people, there's not a lot we can do with that. Even if yeah. we charge them like a premium version of Multiply, it's still not a lot of money. Um, then, <laughs> and this is the crazy thing, 
Then we looked at the traffic that was going to those 50,000 profiles. And it was more than half of the traffic to our entire website. Holy, holy crap. <laughs> so 50,000 out of 20 million profiles were responsible for over half of our traffic. So yeah, there weren't a lot of them, but they were really popular. And that, that's what people were using our product for, is to buy and sell. So we saw, we kind of were like kicking ourselves. We're like, okay, first things first, let's change our terms of service, right? Let's make it okay to do this. And then let's help them. Let's build a shopping cart. Let's figure out a way to encourage this. And once we measured what people were using it for, we realized that not only was it half of our traffic, but there was over a half a billion dollars worth of goods and services being sold on Multiply every year. So we had become Southeast Asia's largest e-commerce site in, the, in that region, 10 times bigger than eBay at the time, and we didn't even know it. Right under your nose. Right under our nose. We had literally built the region's largest e-commerce website and we didn't have an idea. So, you know, thank goodness that we finally realized it may be a little too late, but it was on that basis that we were able to find a new strategic partner and eventually sell the business because the, the company we sold it to was interested in our e-commerce business. And, and that's, that's how a, that's such a crazy story. I yeah. Mean, I, I, you know, all this stuff is happening, but you guys were obviously focused on a, a, a vision for the company that that just wasn't there. Right. It, it Like in your head, it was there. That's where you <laughs> wanted it to go. But that's not how your customers your users were actually using the product. That's right. And it took a little introspection to, to, you know, to realize that. That's right. And so in my mind, there's, there's always this, you know, over the last 20 plus years of building companies, there's a, a very fine line. You have to walk between on the one hand being in, innovative. You know, we all know the saying that when Henry Ford said, if I had asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said a, a faster horse. Mm -hmm. right? So you have to innovate and you have to go with your gut. At the same time, you have to watch what your users are doing because they're the ones who are your customers. And, and if they're saying that you're an e-commerce site, you better listen to them. Yeah. Um, and, and then the third thing is even within your vision, how do you accomplish, how do you get there? Like how, it's, uh, when, when Facebook started, for example, they didn't start as a giant global social network with over 2 billion users. No. They started at one university because they knew that they, well, I don't know if Zuckerberg knew this at the time, but it was critical for him to have that density of usage within Harvard so that they could figure out how to get people using it. And then they went and replicated that somewhere else. So there are a lot of companies that follow that formula where you essentially have a beachhead, whether it's a geographical one or within a market segment. So you've got a vision of where you want to be. And then there's a critical answer to the question, how do I get there? Where are my first customers going to come from? And that's often a big challenge. Definitely. And I think I think it also, you know, a question I, I like to ask a lot of other founders oftentimes when I'm speaking with them is, do you have any interesting use cases that, you know, like that people using the product in a way you didn't anticipate? <laughs> and And more often than not, like, you know, there's a yes, there's, you know, there are ways that people use the product in, in, in the, that which they didn't anticipate. And those could be potential 
you know, uh, avenues of business down the road, um, as was the case with you. Yeah, I think there's so many companies that ended up finding success, not with their original product, but with, you know, some sort of offshoot. And a lot of that is, yeah, looking into how your customers are using it. What I'm, what I was really surprised with Multiply was that being a broad-based social network, you know, it's understood today that social networks can be used for a lot of different things. But back when we were building the first social networks, we didn't know what people were going to use them for. And I was shocked to, it was very surprising that the usage seemed to be entirely geographical. So for example, we knew this was before the days of like streaming music and stuff like that. So people were still sharing music files online. And I could tell you for sure that if you signed up for Multiply from Hungary, uh, you were using it to trade music. Mm -hmm. If you signed up from uh, Vietnam, then you were a professional photographer and you had an online portfolio on your Multiply site. If you were from the Philippines or you were from Indonesia, then you were buying and selling goods. And if you were from Germany, uh, nothing against the German population at large, but this was just a moment in time. If you signed up from Germany, you were a sexual deviant. You know, that's what that's what Multiply became known for in Germany. And so it was, you know, different areas around the world use it for very, very different things. And it was the same product. So it was, it was very, very unique. Very cool. So I want to talk about Y Combinator a little bit, which you alluded to earlier. Uh, which was something that uh, CodeStream, you were part of in Y Combinator, I believe, winter 2018 class. That's right. Um, Yeah. So we had we had Harj Tagger on on an episode a while back, uh, you know, one of the first partners at Y Combinator. Um, And he was talking a lot about, you know, how how when we when we had him on, it was a lot about how to scale up, how they scaled up Y Combinator. And it was very interesting conversation. And how yeah. and how they were able to, you know, they wanted to be able to provide the same quality, you know, uh, support and feedback for entrepreneurs as they scaled it. And I'm curious, as a longtime entrepreneur yourself, someone who had, you know, done three previous companies, what was the benefit of, of being in YC for you? Um, you know, what value add did it have, if anything, uh, for you? Uh, it's a, a question I, I got a lot <laughs> when we first applied. Um, I At the time we applied to YC, I had already built and sold three companies, um, and not only myself, but the whole team. You know, we, we had worked together. So, you know, why, why apply for YC? Isn't that for people to learn how to build companies? And for us, there was one reason that we knew about, and then one of the benefits that we got out of it, we didn't know about. So I'll, I'll describe both of them. In our history, we had sold three companies and we had achieved some financial success because of that. But it wasn't nearly what could have been. Um, as I mentioned, we launched Multiply in 2003 with the world's first social news feed. We had over 20 million registered users. We had a nice outcome with Multiply, so I'm not complaining. But at the same time, we were Facebook before Facebook. Right. Right. So right. Exactly. Yeah. We had to look back and say, well, why Facebook did Facebook grew hundreds win? of billions of dollars? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So why why did Facebook win? Uh, it's not that we lost, but they they beat us. And why was that? And the company right after that was Glip, 
where we launched the same month as Slack with an almost identical product. And although we had success with Glip and we had a nice exit with Glip, we're not worth what is what is Slack worth these days? Nine billion, whatever it is. I don't know what their market valuation is, but it's somewhere in the billions, right? So we didn't have the same level of success as Slack. So when we started this most recent company, the first thing we did before we even picked an idea of what we're going to work on is let's let's look at our strengths and weaknesses and what we did well and what we didn't do very well. And one of the th- one of the common themes about the companies that beat us in the marketplace is they all had very strong connectivity to Silicon Valley. And they were all either based, well, they were all based there, um, but not only based there, they were you know, dripping with Valley influence. And we felt that that's something that was a big weakness for us, a big blind spot. And we hoped that YC could help us with that. So we could get, we could meet people from the Valley, we could participate in Valley events, we could get Valley investors you know, a, a law firm from the Valley, maybe. And all of those things we found to be enormously important. And the reason that they're important isn't so obvious, but one an analogy that a fellow YC partner gave me was that, you know, as a business, as starting a business, what you want is you can think about it like getting a fire going. And if you have a big room and you have some paper and you scrump, scrunch up that piece of paper into a ball, and you randomly scatter those balls of paper all over the room and you light one match, well, you'll probably light a piece of paper on fire and maybe that's touching another piece of paper. And if you're lucky, a third one, but that fire is probably going to go out. What happens if you take all the balls of paper in a room and you put in one big pile in the middle of the room and you light that? Well, we all know what's going to happen. It's going to take off like crazy. And he said, that's what Silicon Valley is like. If you're in the middle of it, you're surrounded by people who live and breathe this stuff. And the, you know, the, your kids that are in a soccer team, the parents of those kids are going to be the CTOs and the CIOs and the investors at all the important companies. And you'll get to know them and you'll interact with them all the time. And it's that word of mouth uh, that's critical to the hype that can really build businesses quickly. Right. I was just going to say, I remember, I remember Glip and Slack, obviously Slack. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 I would like, I would, I want to say that, you know, we even covered Glip on Best Techie at one point. Um, but it's definitely, I, I, I definitely hear you loud and clear in terms of that, that hype machine that, you know, that, 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 that's there in the Valley. And, and absolutely that, you know, for, for like from a product perspective, Glip. I remember Glip and uh, and Slack were very on par, especially yeah. early on, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 but it was it was the word of mouth, the 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 and the traction that, that and just the hype behind Slack that pulled it ahead of basically everybody. Yeah, um, and we couldn't figure out maybe yeah, despite it maybe not being the the best product, it was the most popular product. Yep. And we couldn't figure out a way to compete with the hype because when we did our AB taste test and, you know, in front of real world customers, we asked them, which one do they prefer? You know, we won at least half of those battles. And yet, you know, Slack benefited from the widespread notion that Slack was cool. Mm-hmm. Like, everybody, you know, oh, have you heard about Slack? Oh, it's this cool new tool. You got to try it out. And, you know, we just never were able to generate that buzz no matter what we tried. And, 
and that ultimately limited our success relative to their success, which was, you know, astounding. Like they were, I think, the fastest growing business in the history of American business for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, the last two companies, we had a nice, you know, uh, I don't know if we want to call it second place finish or, you know, we didn't win the race, but we, we did pretty well. And so joining YC was our attempt to more closely connect to, excuse me, one of the missing ingredients which was that hype machine. And then the other thing that the second reason that we didn't know in advance, but ended up being very true is that we learned so much, uh, from participating in YC, um, you know, whether it's, uh, best practices, uh, about how to, how to think about your business. Um, but the, the biggest thing we learned was the importance of being able to clearly articulate your business's value prop in any context. So what do I mean by that? Well, YC is very well known for demo day and demo day happens at the end of your three month, uh, internship or, uh, incubator period, uh, your class. And after that you graduate, um, demo day is your opportunity to spend two minutes up on a stage presenting a five or six slide PowerPoint to 5,000 investors. And often you end up with an investment because of that. And that we, and we did, and, and many YC companies do. But it was that process of distilling your entire business down to just two minutes that we spent weeks on. And we would refine it and refine it and refine it. And so that taught me a couple things. First of all, that how important that process is, being able to very clearly articulate what it is that you do and why that's important. And the second thing it taught us is that it's not so easy. It's something that you can spend weeks on and still improve. Like I thought for sure, it, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just a two minute presentation. Like how, you know, you come up with it. Daunting, it right? Like, yeah. By the way, you're going to do this two minute presentation. Sounds good. Sure. <laughs> But you would think that's the time. It's only two minutes, right? You would think that if you spent a whole day working on a two minute presentation, like how, like you got to nail it by the end of a whole day working on that. But we spent weeks on it and we're making changes for that entire time period and practicing and practicing and changing and practicing it. And, uh, you know, it's pretty remarkable. Like when you attend demo day and I'm sure a lot of these presentations now are online. I'm pretty sure they are. Um, yeah, it's, they, they record them and they have them on YouTube and things like yeah. that. Yeah. It's, you know, you sit one after the other after the other and you're just like blown away by like, holy shit, that company's going to be amazing. I totally want to invest in that company. And then the next one comes up and you're like, no, it's that That's one's amazing. better. Yeah. Yeah. There's a ton of and, amazing companies in YC. Absolutely. And, and yet some of them, you know, aren't, <laughs> they're just like <laughs> presented that way because if you spend that much time on how to make yourself sound you know it's it's the old fake it till you make it right and yeah and it's learning how to describe your company in a very succinct powerful and and straightforward way that matters for everything it matters for investors it matters for customers it matters when you're doing a podcast like this um so that that was something that I, I really took away from YC. And, you know, it all comes from the founder, from Paul Graham. If you read his writing, uh, his I writing is a stout. recommend that you do. You, you can go yeah. to his website. He has it yeah. all there. And, yeah. and, that, and so he sets the tone, right? Like he's not there anymore, but 
YC is, is he's got his fingerprint all over YC still. And it's, it's very basically a, a training mechanism to get you to write like Paul. And, and if we could, if all of us could come anywhere close to his um, clarity and, and brilliance in writing, uh, we're all the better for it. Definitely. So before we get to the last question, before the lightning round, I have, I want to, I want to, I want to talk about YC for one more, one more minute. I want to just ask, so being that you've, you've, you've been through YC, you, you graduated, you did demo day. Um, mm-hmm. you've been away from it for a little over about a year now. Um, did, would you say that the value that you were looking for when you, when you applied was, did it meet your expectations? Did, was it exceeding your expectations? Uh, give us a measure on that. It, it, it blew away my expectations in a way that words, uh, I find it difficult to find the words to describe we uh, we learned so much. We learned how to, you know, in the, in the first day that you're there, what they tell you is the next three months are going to be the most intense months of your life. And each one of you is going to be the James Bond version of yourself. And I thought that was a perfect way to describe it. Because for the next three months, I was James Bond. Uh, you know, you could do anything. And you accomplished an incredible amount. The level of productivity was off the charts. And so it taught you that, that everybody has that gear. Everybody can do that. Um, and then, and and that's important. But then the other thing that delivered value is that, you know, they somewhat famously, you know, they invest a small amount of money for a small amount of equity. And if you do the math, you can sort of imply the valuation of your company, but that's the wrong way to think about it. Because just having a YC logo on your homepage, just being a YC company, increases your valuation by way more than the tiny chunk of equity that they take. So you get the money for free, essentially, and they are a fund-raising machine. So we we had already done – we had a certain amount of money that we wanted to raise. We wanted to raise $2 million. We had already raised more than $2 million before demo day. And then after demo day, we raised another three. We had to turn investors away. And I've been, you know, I've been a CEO for 24 years. I've been raising money the whole time. Raising money is a soul destroying experience. Oh, it's, it's, it totally is. It is and yet it is, YC yeah. turned that around and it was us accepting the offers from the investors or not. We got to say yes or no because there were more investors than we could possibly take their money. And it was, uh, it's a great position to be in as a founder. It's phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that never would have happened without YC. So no, I, look, I, I think, I think YC is a great, uh, program. I, I, uh, I applied, didn't get in when I was working on, when I went with what I was working on. Um, but there are no doubt there are a ton of amazing companies that have come out of yeah. YC. And just a ton of great people that are working there. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. I want to talk, last question before we the lightning round. I want to just talk about your founding team. Um, yeah. Because as you mentioned, you've been with those guys for pretty much your entire uh, professional career, which is, as we, as, we, as we said earlier, spans more than two decades. Yeah. Um, and, and my question with this is, I would assume you guys are, are are really good friends to still to this day. Um, of course. 
what 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 would you say are the benefits of, of being able to keep your team together uh for such a long period of time and what do you attribute to that you know being the case um <clears throat> the benefits are immeasurable uh the knowing and trusting with like ultimate absolute trust in each other makes so many things so much easier you know, I, we don't have to deal with personal drama at least not between us mm-hmm. and you know financial issues are all there's a trust level there that we're we treat each other fairly and we're uh we don't have to ever worry about any aspect of that which is often the reason that companies fail um you know unfortunately i've known too many founders who just sort of part ways with their co-founders over issues that could have been resolved if there was a better relationship. And so, and as an investor, that's a risk that you take on is, you know, that, that the team's going to be able to stay together in order to accomplish the goal. So for us, I think that's an incredible asset. And just personally, it makes my job a lot easier because I don't have to worry about my most important uh, teammates. Um, it's also incredibly rewarding to be able to do this again and again and again with the same team and that it's no one of us that's responsible for our success, but it's truly a team effort and we we celebrate as a team. Uh, we work hard as a team and, uh, you know, when times are tough, we can lean on each other uh, and, and know that each one of us, because we've been through a war together a couple of times, we know that no matter what happens, we're all dedicated to each other and finding the best outcomes. I love it. I, I think it's I think it's amazing that you guys have been together for so long and, and working on the same projects. That's I think that's amazing. Um, yeah. And obviously, as as you pointed out, from from an outsider's perspective, like an investor, it looks really good, right? Because you you guys have done this before. You've worked together. You, they you you know that you can work together well right and it just makes it just makes it the process a lot more uh pain-free i would imagine yeah it's kind of, kind of funny anecdote there is that uh so as, as i mentioned like this whole the whole purpose of yc is to get to demo day and so for weeks people are just practicing their presentations and and towards the end you practice in front of the yc partnership so they set up these little stages around the building and you you know, anybody at any time can go up on one of the stages and you'll have a couple of YC partners that will critique your presentation and give you positive, constructive feedback. And as we got towards the end and we were doing our, our pitch in front of demos, like we threw up the first slide there, which was, you know, the team, how long we've been working together and how much money we've made in exits. And and I'd say at least half of the partners were like, okay, you're, you're done. You don't need to... <laughs> like, <laughs> We don't need to see the slide too, right? right. <laughs> like, just as one far slide as it goes, yeah. you're, you're finished. Like, don't <laughs> be listening after this first slide. So, uh, no, we and we all know that we're we've had uh, we're fortunate to have each other, and and it's something that I I always remind myself of, and uh, I think we're all very appreciative of. Awesome. Well, Peter, you made it through uh, the hardest part. Now, time for a little bit of fun with all the right. lightning round which, of course, is supported by Wix. You can create a professional website today at Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com. 
So, Peter, when you're ready, let me know and we'll get started. I am ready. All right, here we go. If you could choose to shop at one store for free, which one would you choose? Woodcraft. What do they sell? Wood, like, like uh, Woodworking is my hobby. Oh, woodworking. Okay. That yeah. sounds cool. Yeah. Uh, what's a metric that you keep? What's the metric you keep a close eye on for your business? The one metric, the most important one. Content creation usage. If someone narrated your life, who would you want to be the narrator? Narrated my life. Jeez, uh, <laughs> a tough one. I, I no idea. Uh, Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. Okay. Uh, if you could choose to be one age forever, what age would you choose? 23. You know, nobody likes you when you're 23. <laughs> <laughs> I might have just dated myself there. Um, but it's not, oh, they're a huge, I'm a huge Blink-182 fan. Uh, last question. Should toilet paper hang over or under? Oh, come on. This one isn't even debatable. It's over. I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm 100% with you on that. There are some people out there who I've seen Crazy. on the internet, none none on this podcast yet, that uh, yeah. <laughs> say under. Um, yeah. But that is not me. So I'm glad it's not you either. Yeah. <laughs> well, Peter, it's been great having you on. I really enjoyed the conversation. There are some things we didn't even get to talk about that I wanted to, but this was this was phenomenal. If anyone who's listening wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way for uh, for them to do that? Uh, it's probably by email. I know it's a little old school, but um, well, I'll give you my email and my, my Twitter. Email is Pez, that's like the candy, P-E-Z, at codestream.com. And my Twitter handle is at Pezster, P-E-Z-S-T-E-R. I love it. I'm going to follow you on Twitter if I'm not already. I yeah. I, I, I love the the Pez uh, nickname. It's when, Growing up, I used to love the little dispensers myself, so... Yeah. The fact that you can make that work with your name is awesome. Yeah, well, you know, through college, uh, a lot of people didn't know my first name was Peter because everybody called me Pez. So that's, that's basically my name. There you go. Well, Pez, it was great having you on. And awesome. uh, I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thanks very much. I really appreciate it. Uh, I had a lot of fun, too, and, uh, and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Techie Bites. Stay tuned for more episodes every Tuesday with awesome interviews and conversations about technology and business. If you like what we're doing, please consider supporting the podcast at anchor.fm slash besttechie and or by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Both ways help us greatly and are much appreciated. So thank you. Until next time, we'll see you. And remember, remember, take care of your computers.